So you can have a seat. I'm pregnant. B-A. And what? You are going to be a... I'm going to behave. Grandfather. I'm a father. Grandfather. A great father. Grandfather. Grandfather. Yes. I'm going to be a grandfather. Yes. Yes. I'm going to be a grandfather. I'm going to be a grandfather. I'm going to be a grandfather. Yes. Oh, we're going to be grandfather. I can't believe that. Are you going to Man, there's just, there's just something beautiful about this moment. There's something wonderful in hearts aligned. That's what's happening here. We're seeing two people or four people sharing in the same interests, sharing in the same goal, sharing in the same love. Their hearts have aligned in that their desires are overlapping. Their loves are shared. That's why we as people, we love to celebrate birthdays or or accomplishments or getting our Aggie ring. A few of us in a week with people, right? We love to celebrate with that with family and friends. Why? Because we are people who love to match our hearts with others. We love to have that shared experience. We love when our desires overlap and when our hearts love the same things. There's something beautiful that happens in that moment, in that little teeny tiny community. And as believers, what's incredible is we have the opportunity to align our hearts with the God of the universe, with the creator of all things. He's told us that he is willing to give us a new heart, that he's willing to go deep within us to find the very core of our being and shape it and mold it and change it to where it matches his own. That's what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. When Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again, what that did is it paid the penalty for our sin. But it didn't just wipe our debt clean. It didn't just let us be like, okay, that's good. You're starting at zero. Instead, when he died for us, it not only wiped away our debt, but it also credited to us righteousness. It credited credited to us the perfect life that he had lived, the accomplishments that he had made, the heart that he exhibited. We as believers have the opportunity to have hearts that match that are the same as that align with the God of the universe. And yet, the truth is, is that many times we don't feel like we're there. Many times we find ourselves maybe just not even caring about that. Finding ourselves in those moments where we're just decided that, you know what, I just got to focus on me right now. I'm not even going to really concern myself with what the Lord's heart really wants, what the Lord Lord desires in this moment. Sometimes we find ourselves maybe bitter towards God because something else didn't work out the way we wanted it to, and so we're kind of holding it against Him. And so I think, well, I don't really care what you want because what you want never lines up with what I want or what I need. Sometimes we find ourselves just making up our minds and setting ourselves on a path and deciding, this is what I'm going to do. And you know what? I, again, I just don't even care what the Lord wants to do out of this situation. I don't really care where he's tugging me because I've made up my mind. This is what's best for me. We find ourselves not even caring about the Lord's heart. Sometimes we find ourselves feeling disconnected from the Lord's heart, even when we want to align. 
Even when we want to listen to him and, and follow his path, sometimes we find ourselves unable to do that. Sometimes we find ourselves in that moment of conflict where our desires don't match up. And asking ourselves, well, well, if this isn't what's right, if I'm not supposed to love this guy, or if I'm not supposed to take this job, or if I'm not supposed to go this direction, make these plans, why do I want to so badly? If God seems to be closing these doors, and yet my emotions are still pushing me in that direction, what's, what's happening? We find ourselves with prayers that go unanswered. Where we're just having to wait and wait, or maybe they're answered, but not in the way that we wanted them to. We find ourselves with problems and difficulties and struggles that don't go away, that aren't solved. No matter how much we ask the Lord to step into that situation, to heal that relationship, to mend those bridges, to open up that new path forward, we don't see it happen, and we ask ourselves, what is happening? What is wrong? Why am I not aligned with the Lord's heart? So how do we get there? How do we as believers take advantage of that incredible opportunity to have hearts, loves, desires that align with the God of the universe? For the next five weeks, we're looking at the life of Nehemiah. Uh, a biblical historical figure, uh, a man, a person who aligned with God's heart. First and foremost, this was a person who aligned with God's heart, a person who followed God's plan, a person who formed God's people into a community that would go on to change their culture. He was a person who saw brokenness and chose to build something new in the rubble. This morning, specifically, we're looking at Nehemiah's heart, and we're looking at how it was aligned with God's in what it loved, in where it broke, and in how it was moved through the power of prayer. When we open up the book of Nehemiah, uh, it starts off uh, as kind of the first chapter is in the first, mostly in the first person. There's a couple chapters in Nehemiah's written first person, which leads a lot of people to believe that maybe Nehemiah himself wrote this book. He says uh, in chapter 1, uh, verse 1, he says, These are the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. It so happened that in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, I was in Susa, the citadel. And Hanani, who was one of my relatives, along with some of the men from Judah, came to me, and I asked them about the Jews who had escaped and had survived the exile and about Jerusalem. All right, so we open up, and we see this guy named Nehemiah. He's hanging out. He's surrounded by really cool names. Uh, and he's hanging out in Susa. Right, now, Susa was the winter capital, one of the many capitals, the winter capital of Persia at that time. Artaxerxes was uh, the emperor or well, there's multiple guys. There was a guy named Artaxerxes. or multiple, but this is one of them. So one of the Artaxerxes were in power at the time. Uh, he was ruling over the nation of Persia, big, powerful nation, and Nehemiah's in their winter capital. We don't know why yet. We'll find out at the end of the chapter. But he's there, and he's seeing, though, he, he's a Jew, and he's seeing some other Jews show up in the capital. Specifically, it's some people that he kind of knows, like some relatives, some people he kind of maybe knows from back home, old neighbors, old buddies that used to play, you know, Bike ball together. I don't know. Tetherball. I don't know. Oh gosh. But when they did something 
kick the rock. Uh, but they, they played these games, or they knew each other. And so he asked them, hey, what's going on with the people back home? What's going on back in Jerusalem? Why? Why does Nehemiah take the time to ask about this? Because Nehemiah, will find out, has a very stressful job. Nehemiah's got this whole big thing. He's miles and miles and miles away in the nation of Persia. So why is he asking about these people back in Jerusalem? I think very first, what we see in this book, what was revealed in these just first couple of verses, is that Nehemiah loved what God loves. That's what we see. Nehemiah took the time to ask about these people because he loved what God loves, and a shared love creates a shared interest. We see this in our lives with our family members, our loved ones, our friends. Generally, the people that you love, generally the people that you have a lot of overlapping desires, you have a lot of overlapping loves and, and passions, well, you're going to be interested in similar things. You're going to share this interest. In this case, Nehemiah loves what God loves, and so he's interested in the two, most etern- the two eternal aspects of our world. The only two things that last beyond this world that we're living in right now are the souls of men and the word of God. That's it. Everything else is burned away. So Nehemiah says, what is up with those people? How are they doing back in God's city where the temple of the Lord resides? How are they doing? How are those people getting along? He wasn't distracted by his current life, which is impressive because, you know, the reality is that a lot of times we fall into that trap of maybe knowing like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be interested in this or, or care about that. And yet we get so distracted about aspects of our lives where we become self-involved, where we just become distracted by maybe less important things and we become blinded and unaware of crucial details in our midst. Uh, I'm, in a, I'm taking a preaching class this semester, my first preaching class, finally. Uh, and I uh, have this wonderful professor who was talking to us about how uh, when people get up and speak, right, so public speaking is still the greatest fear in America, for whatever reason. It's above death. People fear public speaking more than anything else. The old adage is if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than at the stage. Like, that's the way it is. So many people fear public speaking. And so a lot of times when people have to do that, they get forced in the moment. Like they take, they take a preaching class, for example. You're forced in this moment. He says, a lot of times you have nervous energy that you work out without even realizing it. He says, everybody's different. And it gets super crazy. Uh, I was talking with one of our fellows who, he was in Young Life, and so he said there was one, team le- one leader in Young Life in his uh, team that would, every time he'd get up and speak, oh, I didn't bring my keys. Does anyone have keys on the front row right here? Nice. Thank you, Chris. So every time he would get up and speak, his keys would be in his pocket, right? Because that's where they belong. But he, at whatever point, like when he'd get into it, he'd kind of his hands would be in his pocket, and then he'd kind of reach in, and he'd get his keys out of his pocket, and he'd just kind of swing them around like this. And they'd like jingle and jangle and all that stuff. And he would do this the whole time. He's like talking about like, you're a sinner. You need to stop. You know, like, and he's just like <laughs> dangling these things. Thank you so much, Chris. And he didn't even know it. He didn't even know it, was not aware at all. My professor himself, he talked about how he's, I mean, he's been preaching for years and years and years and years and years. And he said that uh, at one point uh, he got into this habit that was pointed out by his wife where he didn't even realize it. But what was happening is when he would preach, he would wind up in this pose. I'm going to try to do it. He would wind up in this pose (laughs) with his thumb 
right in the middle of his forehead. Because what he said he would do is he would make a point. He'd be holding his Bible in one hand. He'd be gesturing, making, you know, the grand point of, you're a sinner or whatever. And he would bring his hand back and rest it on top of his head while still kind of, he said a lot of times his eyes would be closed and he would still kind of make his point just like this. And he didn't even know it. He had no idea until his wife pointed it out. I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of times whenever I'm speaking, if I have any kind of worked up energy that i got to get out, I just start going like this. Boo, 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 boo. In the middle. No, I'm just kidding. But as, I'm sure you'll look. I'm sure you'll find something, and you can line up and tell me afterwards. But we have this part of ourselves where we're so focused on one thing, right? We're so focused on maybe delivering that presentation. We're so focused on giving that, getting that message out. We're so focused that we miss out on this huge detail right in the middle of what we're doing. We miss out on a hand on our head. On Keys are just flinging all over the place because we can become single-minded, which is really, really, really great at times, but really, really terrible and detrimental at other times. We've all been in the zone of focusing on studying for that class, or we're working on that book, or whatever it is, that research project, and maybe, you know, we don't even notice that our roommate comes in just in tears from something that just happened. We find ourselves so focused on wanting to rest up or get this stuff done over the break that our family is just, there's someone in our family that's in the middle of chaos, and we don't even notice because we're so focused on what we're doing, and what we need to accomplish, and what we need in that given moment. Nehemiah doesn't fall into that trap. Nehemiah recognizes, you know what? The God of the universe, he loves people. He's interested in people. And he's interested in his word going out to those people. So when I see my neighbors come back, when my family shows up, when I know that God's people are in the room, I'm going to ask them about how the rest of God's people are doing. I'm going to ask them about where God's word is going out in our nation, amongst our people. Nehemiah shares this interest with the Lord, and unfortunately, the news that he gets, the answer to his question is not good. They said to him, to Nehemiah, the remnant that remains from the exile there in the province are experiencing considerable adversity and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem lies breached and its gates have been burned down. Now, Nehemiah is asking this around 444, 445 BC. All right, now, he knows that the temple in Jerusalem, Jerusalem as a, as a whole, was ransacked in about 586 B.C. Right? So about 140 years earlier, the, the, the city of Jerusalem was just demolished. The temple was destroyed. Now, 70 years after that, so 70 years before this moment, uh, the temple was rebuilt. There was a big project. A bunch of Jews went back. They, they worked on it. One of the leaders was Ezra, whose book is right before this one. Uh, and there was this incredible victory. They were like, yeah, you know, we got the temple back. The Lord's house is rebuilt. It's amazing. But what Nehemiah is finding out right here is that even though the temple was reconstructed 70 years earlier, that the city of Jerusalem still remains unguarded. That its walls are breached, that its gates have been burned to the ground. In other words, the people in Jerusalem are not safe. The temple cannot be used because they're under constant danger. 
Nehemiah hears about his people that are back in his home, in his hometown where, where he's from, right? this nation that he belongs to, he finds out that these people are facing incredible destruction, that what was once beautiful is now broken. He's finding out that they're all still in danger. They're all still under a constant threat of attack. Uh, there are all nations around them that, that hated them, that would come in and send raiding parties and take people away. Uh, he found out, though, the worst part of all of it it wasn't just the destruction, it wasn't just the danger that they were in. The worst part was that they were still distant from God. That they could not worship in God's house. Their ultimate problem was that there was a rift between themselves and the God who loved them. So when Nehemiah hears this news, he sat down abruptly, crying and mourning for several days. Literally, literally in the Hebrew right here, Nehemiah is collapsing. Sitting down abruptly means essentially that it just happened immediately, that it happened almost involuntarily. That he's so burdened by this news, that he's so heavily hit by this tragic account of events that he collapses. He falls down when he sees the state of his people the needs of his people broke his heart. This is another sign of how we know that Nehemiah's heart was aligned with the Lord's. Not just because he loved the same things, but because his heart broke where God's heart breaks. He loved what God loves. And when you share a love, you cre- that creates a shared joy and sorrow. As believers, we should align ourselves with God's heart, right? That's our goal. Both in victories and joys, but also in defeats and sorrows and tragedy. That's the people that we should be. That's the people that we are in a lot of different uh, circles. You can't even be near this guy right here. And I, don't know, I don't know what Jesperson was saying. He, it looked like he was trying to get out of the way. Strong coming to it. Washington trapped in the corner. No timeouts for the Panthers. So Washington throws it into the hands of the Aggies. Gilder lays it in. Tie game 71 with 1.9 seconds left. (sighs) Just a few weeks ago, we were all united as people of Maroon, right? The nation of Good bull. We were united in incredible victory. This was a moment that even people that weren't watching the game, even people that were like, yeah, whatever, we were going to lose. Even those people, of which I am one, suddenly were like, well, okay, I guess I should like pay a little bit of attention. Because this is so amazing, because everyone's blowing up. People are exploding. This was an incredible, triumphal victory. People were just over the moon, they were so excited. Everyone's starting to say, like, this, you know, this is it. Like, this is our year. Like, this, this, is, this is what we have. Like, we, you know, I thought we weren't going to go places. And then, you know, we played another game a few days later. And we were like, okay, maybe not, maybe not. But that's okay. It's a building year. It's a building year, right? That's what it always is. It's always a building year. It's always a building year. But we had that moment where we were united in victory. And in the same way we were united in defeat, we shared that joy, that incredible joy, and yet we also share that incredible sorrow. Because when you share a love, you share in the joy, you share in the sorrow, you share in the life, you share in the pain. 
and the destruction. Over this past Easter weekend, our world was full of destruction. Our brothers and sisters in Christ came under attack. Multiple areas, multiple events. In Lahore, Pakistan, there was a a gathering of Christians. And this is another gathering in Lahore, Pakistan, after the fact, because they're mourning the loss of at least 72 people that were killed, at least 320 that were injured because of a suicide bomber that got into the middle of this park and just set off an explosion. 72 people, many of them believers, half of them children, were murdered on Easter. And this should break our heart. This should move you deep down. Because these are our people. The Christian response in Pakistan was incredible. The nation is 2% Christian. Right? There's a couple million Christians in the whole nation. It's 2% of the total population is Christian. One of their leaders, a bishop in the Catholic Church over there, uh, made a statement immediately afterwards. He said, Last year, 100 homes of Christians were burnt down in one part of Lahore, and churches have been bombed. He says, We pray also for the church in Pakistan, which has shown such courage and faith that their and our response to the atrocities they suffer will be truly Christ-like. Meaning what? Meaning that we are expressing love's victory over evil in the words of the dying crucified one. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These are believers. And this is their need. This is the state of our people. And this should break our hearts. This is what Jesus Christ saw in his ministry on earth. In his little sliver of the world that he went to in Galilee, in the nation of Israel. We see in Matthew 9, he's traveling around. He's been going throughout all the towns and villages, teaching them in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were bewildered and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Literally in the Greek, what we're seeing is that he, in that compassion, is moved in his gut. The seat of emotion in that day was your gut. Not your heart, your gut. And so what we see here is when Jesus looks out on these people, when he sees the destruction in their midst, the sickness and the death, when he sees the danger that they're in, the fact that they're still helpless, that the fact that they're still leaderless, the fact that they're still under oppression and have no idea what to do or where to go. When he sees not just that destruction, not just that danger, but when he sees the distance between them and God, when he sees that they don't know what God wants, and when he realizes that they need to hear the good news of the kingdom because they had lost their way, because they were following false teachings, when he saw that, he had compassion. When he saw that, his gut 
was moved. This should be our response when we see the state of our people, whether they're abroad or whether they're right here in our midst. The reality is that our people, the state of our people is is tragic. Right now, in America, in just the sliver of college students, right? American college students, according to the American Psychology, or Psychological Association, they recently conducted a study, found that at least half of college students need and seek out counseling at some point in their college career. Half of students. Why? Because they're going in and they're listing reasons. There's a little bit of overlap, but they're listing their major reasons. The very top reason these days, you could probably guess it, is anxiety. Just passed up depression for first place. Anxiety drives 46% of those students to counseling. Anxiety, even in students that don't seek counseling, it was about 56 to 60% of students listed as a major health concern is anxiety in their lives. Six out of ten of you, I know, at least, consider anxiety to be just this overwhelming burden. 40% of those students were depressed. 35% of those students were seeking help in relationships. One out of six students right now in America are going to be treated for anxiety, some sort of anxiety disorder. Right now, the state of your people, the people in your midst, people that you are. I mean, you're surrounded by other people, and yet you still feel alone. That's what we see right now. What was once a wonderful institution, this this goal of we're going to go, and we're going to learn, we're going to grow, we're going to be equipped, has become this oppressive burden, and it puts you in danger. Same report, they found that 30% of students right now in America have contemplated suicide. 30%, 30%, one out of three. That about 24% enter into uh, or practice some sort of self-harm. That 10% attempt suicide. One out of 10 actually go through, make a plan and go through with that plan in an attempt to commit suicide. There's destruction and there's danger. Which most tragic of all, Duke University just did a study where they we're looking across just all of America, and they're finding out about religiosity and spirituality in America. And what they found was that out of everyone under the age of 60, right, 60 and under, 18% of those people claim that they go to church at least once a month. 18%. Meaning that 82% of Americans 60 and under don't. 82%. Four out of five. Is church the perfect measure for whether or not someone is a genuine believer? Of course not. Non-believers can be here. Real believers could not be here. But it's a pretty good measure. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. We should never forget, never, ever forget that our health is failing, our relationships are struggling, and our world is dying because our sin has separated us 
from God. That's the root issue. Everything else is simply a symptom of that problem. That's the state of our people. So what do we do? What can we do? Because when I hear about issues like that, when I see things that are overseas, when I see things that are close to home, I, I don't generally just be like, oh, okay, that's interesting. I generally want to ask myself, well, okay, well, what's, what's going to be done? Like, who can do something about that? And we all get there. Many times we get frustrated and we get angry and we hear about certain issues overseas or, or right here at home and we get upset and we become, uh, you know, just, just furious and we start talking about it and maybe we raise an issue and maybe we join an organization, maybe. A lot of times maybe we talk about it on social media, we put it in a hashtag about awareness of it of some sort and then eventually the truth is that we move on. That's what we do. We get so mad, we get so upset and yet at some point we just disengage because we decide, you know what, I can't do anything about it. There's nothing really I can engage with. There's these other things that are going to take my attention away. So right now, right in this moment, let's just ask ourselves, what do we do about the state of our people? What can we do? What should we do? When we see the death and destruction, when we see the distance between them and God, when we realize that all of these people are walking around us that are lost, what do we do about that? If our hearts are breaking, how do we move beyond that? What's our next step? When Jesus saw the needs of the people around him, when he saw the destruction and the danger, when he saw the distance that was driven between themselves and God, he looked at his disciples and he gives them a very clear next step. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus looks at his disciples in the middle of this moment, in the middle of this need, and he says, you know what you need to do? You need to pray. You need to pray that God would do something. That God would move towards this need. That God would raise up and send out workers who can go and meet all of these needs, focused first and foremost on their need to believe in me, Jesus Christ. You know what Nehemiah does? Immediately after hearing that news, immediately after collapsing to the floor, he prays. He prays. And he mourns. And he fasts. For days. And that's what we're going to do right now. A little bit unorthodox, but we're going to take a break right here in this moment. We're going to pray. We're going to seek the Lord, and we're going to ask him what Jesus commanded us to ask, that he would raise up workers, that he would show us the needs around us, first and foremost, that our hearts would break, first and foremost. And then we will pray that God will raise up workers to move into those needs, to move into those moments, into those environments, into those situations, and perform his work, do his good. So let's go before him right now. God, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity, Lord, to pray for the state of our people. Lord, we thank you that you've given us this command, this plan of action. Take a moment right now. Pray, ask the Lord.
to reveal the state of your people. I don't know who those people are. Maybe you don't even know right now. But ask the Lord to reveal that to you, to clarify that for you. Is it your roommates who are in need? Is it a family member? Is it a friend? Who is it that you are, is in your midst who's in the middle of destruction or who's facing a danger, someone who's distant from the God who created them and loves them? Ask the Lord to show you right now where should your heart break. Ask him that. If you would take a moment now and just ask the Lord to to raise up workers. To work through people as he's graciously chosen to do, as he tells us he's faithful to do, to, to raise people, to empower them with his spirit, to address those needs, to move into those situations, to step into that destruction and danger, to close that distance between himself and the lost. Ask the Lord to raise up people to do that in that spot, in that need, amongst those people that he already raised to your mind. Ask him that right now. Lord, we thank you that you are not one who is overwhelmed by the needs of this world. That, God, you see the death and destruction, Lord, that sometimes we hear about and sometimes we don't. And yet, God, you are not overwhelmed. Lord, you're not overburdened. Lord, you don't run in fear. God, you've already defeated death. God, this is the battle you've already won. Lord, we thank you that you've proven to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that you're for us, that death is not the end. That sin will not be victorious. Lord, we thank you that you are greater, that you are good. So Lord, we thank you for listening to us, God, for hearing our prayers. Lord, may we be a people that continue to pray that continue to come to you with needs, God, with questions, or with hearts that are broken for the world around us. God, we pray these things in your will. Amen. So speaking of destruction, yesterday I had a wasp nest on my back porch, and it needed to be destroyed. We live in a fallen world where wasps exist. I don't know if they were here beforehand. Maybe there was some sort of transition stage where they used to like spray perfume out their butts and now it's venom. I don't know. But there's a wasp nest on my back porch, which is problematic because I have a young daughter. And so I needed to step out into that moment and get rid of that nest, right? Like I could avoid it. I could know like, all right, don't poke the wasp. But like, you know, my daughter Charlotte's 15 months old. She doesn't quite get that yet. She's still like, nature's great. And so she assumes that all things are her friends. So I had to destroy this nest. Uh, and I went out into my backyard or onto my back porch, uh, and Charlotte saw me. She wanted to help, to her credit. Uh, she saw me step out, and she said, Dad, I want to come out there with you. I think I could be of great assistance. 
Uh, if you'll observe, I know how to press my face against a window. Maybe I could just like eat it or something. I don't know. There's probably something I can do in the situation. But I said, nah, nah, baby girl, you stay back. Dada's got this. Because I knew in my heart of hearts that I was equipped for that moment. Right? I knew that God had equipped me with my, my height. Right? He had equipped me with a can of raid. Uh, and he had uniquely positioned me as the leader of my family, the head of my household, uh, as the owner of this property. And so I knew, okay, this is it. Like, this is my problem. This is what I'm going to do. I'm not just meant to sit back and make faces in the window, uh, even though that looks really, really fun. Instead, I know that in this moment, I am meant to move, right? And murder wasps. So that's what I knew. It was a two-edged mission. When we look at the needs in our midst, when Nehemiah looked at the needs in his midst, what he realized, what's so beautiful at the end of the first chapter, is that he doesn't just pray that God would raise up someone. He recognizes that, you know what? Maybe I'm that person that's meant to move. He says, God, I want you to grant your servant success today and show compassion to me in the presence of this man. Who is this man? Well, I was the cupbearer for the king. And this is where the story just takes off. Where Nehemiah says, you know what? I see these needs. I see these problems. The state of my people is breaking my heart. But because my heart is aligned with the Lord's, because I love what he loves, because I'm breaking for what he breaks for, I'm now willing to move in the way that he wants me to move. I'm going to see this brokenness in my midst, and I'm going to choose to build something because I am equipped and positioned to do something in this moment. I'm the cupbearer to the king. I have the ear of this king. It's something we're going to talk about next week, and it's really, really cool. When Jesus looks at his disciples, he tells them, I want you to raise up. I want you to pray that God would raise up workers to move into this harvest. That's the end of chapter 9. Start of chapter 10, guess what he does? He gathers his disciples, he pairs them up, and he sends them out. I want you to pray that God would raise workers. And you know what? You are some of those workers. You have been uniquely equipped and positioned to do something in the midst of this brokenness, to build something in the middle of that rubble. When we look at the needs in our midst, we need to recognize that there's not just somebody who can do something about those needs that can move into those moments, into those situations, into that brokenness. We need to recognize that God wants to use us in those moments, in those needs, in those situations. We need to recognize that God can shape our hearts to match his own, to love what he loves, to break where he breaks, but also in how we move towards those needs. This is why we work so hard to provide leadership opportunities within Grace College. This is why we go out of our way, put in time and effort to come up with these these ways that you can serve and lead. Not because we have boxes to check off or or spots to fill. It's because we want to give you an opportunity to position yourself to do the Lord's work. We want to equip you. We want to help you. We want to raise you up and send you out into the midst of your people in ways that we can't go, in ways we can't move. Have conversations that I can't have. That's what we want for you. 
That's why so many of you have already applied for leadership. It's beautiful. That's why the rest of you, you still can. If you come to the back, ask us about it. Go online. Please consider stepping into that moment. That's why, though, maybe some of you, it's like, well, I can't do that for a whole year. I can't sign up for that commitment. I've got, you know, night stuff. That's fine. That's fine. But what we have now realized is like, okay, there's going to be some people that maybe we can't equip and send in that environment. So what if we do something a little bit smaller? What if we do something a little bit more uh, limited? Something that takes a little bit less or a lot less time. That's why this semester we're starting a new elective, starting next Sunday, 9.15 in this room for four weeks you can come and you can learn basically the principles of leadership, basically the principles of what our leaders learn over the course of a year. We want to boil it down and give it to you in four weeks. We want you to be people who can build community, people who can see the needs in their midst, can see the situations, the state of their people, and step into that and do something about it, to see the brokenness and choose to build something in the midst of that rubble. So we're going to train you. We want to equip you so that God can send you into the midst of those people. Next four weeks, 9.15, in this room, please consider positioning yourself in that way, allowing the Lord to work through you in that way. This is why next week I'm going to come to you with something a little bit different. I want that switch. I'm going to come to you with a direction to move with an opportunity for all of us to build together. I'm really excited about it. Because while this week, while today we saw Nehemiah's prayer, next week we see his plan. And it's beautiful. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you are so good. That, Lord, that you choose to use us, God, in ministry, to speak through us, God, our hearts break for the needs around us, but Lord, ultimately we know that those needs won't last. That God, that that brokenness won't remain. Lord, we thank you that there's a day coming when there's no more sin, there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, there's no more tears, there's no more death. God, we long for that day. Lord, we ask that it would be soon. God, in the meantime, we want to be faithful servants for you. So take a moment right now. Ask the Lord to show you not just the needs in your midst, but maybe how can you step towards that? What relationship could you start up? What words of kindness or, or gentleness or forgiveness could you speak towards a person? What, what, what way could you give of your time or energy or money towards that need, towards that issue that's already been raised to your mind. Ask the Lord not just to raise up workers, but ask the Lord to equip you personally to step into that need. Ask him to reveal to you how can you be a part of his work, of his building in the midst of that brokenness.